We continue on in Acts chapter 4, and we're looking at verses 13 through 17 this morning. In verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside, outside of the council, they confirmed, uh, conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a, a noble miracle, a notable miracle has been done through them is evident. It's evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they, they speak to no man in this name. Peter previously had been allowed to address the council, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership. And as we saw in verses 10 through 12, he went from being the man on trial to putting the Sanhedrin on trial. I have no doubt that upon hearing Peter speak to the crowd, those who were in the Sanhedrin, who had been watching and listening, probably had been beholding his Galilean accent. And they obviously from hearing that felt that they had an intellectually challenged man before them. Someone they could easily contend with. Someone they could easily control. But upon hearing him address them as we see also John must have spoken as well. For in verse 13... They said they saw the boldness and confidence of Peter and John. They knew these men had not been trained by any of the leading rabbis in any of the leading schools. That they were uneducated and untrained men. So, first of all, we see what had been given by Peter and John was a great defense. And it was such a great defense that those who were in the Sanhedrin marveled. They marveled at what had been said. And this is the first sign of arrogance. There are other signs that will come up during this time, but here in this particular passage we have our first sign of arrogance. They marveled. They marveled that anyone besides them could engage them in anything religious. They marveled that these who had not been trained in the right places could put them in such a place that they could not respond. And they realized by miracle and word these men had painted them into a corner. 
And then they realized that they had been with Jesus. There are three parts of this that we'll get to. The first part where we've mentioned is the great defense that Peter gave. Secondly will be the deepening dilemma that they Sanhedrin was facing and then thirdly their demonic decision. They realized that they had been with Jesus. Now this could be because of what they said and how they carried themselves or as the New American Standard has it, that they began to realize them as having been with Jesus. They were remembering, having seen these men with Jesus. For no doubt, they had not only watched Jesus carefully, they had confronted him from time to time. We're not 50 to 60 years removed from when Jesus was on his earthly ministry. We're just months removed. So these men who are in the Sanhedrin, they weren't up for election every year. They're in place and they're there for a while. So these in that group of men are those who had Christ sent to Pilate. In that group of men were those who confronted him. In that group of men were those of the, uh, the Sadducees who came up with that great scheme. Well, you know, there was a man and he had a wife. And he died. So she went with his brother. She had seven others. Well, in the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? And they really thought they had him until Jesus really told them in the resurrection there neither, is neither marriage or giving in marriage. These were among the people that did this sort of thing. So they had many confrontations with Jesus. They had watched him. They went from place to place watching him, looking for him to say something that they could say, aha, let's get him. These were the same men who were looking for someone to pay to betray Jesus. This is not a group of of devout holy men that have gathered in this semicircle to try to thwart the gospel. So they remembered having seen these men with Jesus. And so it's not that these men were wearing halos or had holy glows about them. I've seen people come up with sermons from this, say, you know, it says here that they, it looked, they could see that they'd been with Jesus. What about you? Can people see that you've been with Jesus? That's that's not what the, the verse is saying to us here. It is true that if you spend a lot of time uh, with Christ, that you will change. There's no question there, but these men did not have something holy glowing with them. They These men had been seen with Christ. And now these men had the Sanhedrin in a tight spot. And let us also remember, within these men, many of them, within side lay an evil conscience. For Peter had already hit a solid chord of conviction when he told them by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, 
whom God raised from the dead. And so we see then their second the point there. We see their dilemma. You see, they had tried to squelch the truth. How had they done it? First, they did it by having Christ crucified. That was their first attempt to squelch the truth. Secondly, their second attempt to squelch the truth was this. When Christ rose from the dead and the Roman soldiers came and said, Hey, he's not in the tomb. And they said, No problem. We'll just say that his disciples came and stole them while you were asleep. You just tell them that while you were asleep, the disciples came and told them. See, when you have an evil conscience, you don't make good sense when you come up with plans. How do you know what happens when you sleep? But they were the Roman soldiers say, well, while we're sleeping, which they weren't supposed to be doing anyway, but while they were sleeping, they, they were there to be guards, not test out Tempur-Pedic mattresses. So they, they say that while we were asleep, they came and took the body. And they paid the men to say that. So there's the second attempt that they have come up with to squelch this. Now we're coming up to the third attempt. Tell these men not to say anything anymore. Because this has put them again in this, this terrible dilemma that Jesus has surfaced again and by His name an undeniable miracle had been done. And an evil conscience perhaps started off as a convicting conscience but it got ignored and so it got hardened. So once again it plots to stop the spread. The trouble is when you're operating out of such a hatred and fear, you make very bad decisions. So in verse 13 we have the word spoken by Peter and John. And in verse 14 you have standing next to them, apparently they brought him with them, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against them. So you have standing next to them the living miracle, the undeniable miracle. And with all their, this combined, we see then they could say nothing. Seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. For if they say Jesus didn't do that, they still have to admit that something great has been done. And they would still be admitting to the miracle. And by the way, I think it's a, a kind of an unfortunate translation here. In verse 16, what shall we do with these men? For indeed, a notable miracle has been done. Literally, a remarkable sign has taken place. A sign that attests to something great 
and a work of God had taken place. The same thing that they were asking Jesus for a while back. What sign do you give to us? So it's, they can't deny the, the miracle. It's almost like creation. Uh, those who don't believe that God created. See, well, if we don't come up with something else, people will believe that God created. Now they're at a standstill. So they say, we need to discuss this privately. Escort these three men out. And we see that in verse 16. What shall we do to these men? <laughs> what are we going to do with them? Indeed, a remarkable sign has been done th through them. It's evident. It's evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. And it, you have to understand, perhaps in this, it's not just Peter and John they're worried about. It's also the man who was born lame, who was born crippled. Because when the people see him walking around, they're going to say, Hey, what happened? I saw you for years laying out there by the temple gate. You're walking now. What happened? And he will be tell them exactly what happened in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He was healed. So they've got a, a triple play that they've got to deal with. Peter, John, and the man that was healed. And then on top of that, When they get together, you notice they don't say anything about... They say that a notable miracle, a notable sign has been taking place. No question that they've come up with that. But none of them seem to ask, do you think there's something behind this? I mean, they're supposed to be the religious leaders of the people. Indeed, without a doubt, a notable miracle has been done through them. And then they go on. Well, it's even worse because all Jerusalem. All Jerusalem. They know about it. Jerusalem social media would be in full gear. And like most things that are passed on from one person to another, what do you think? Do you think the miracle stayed exactly as it was? Or by the time it hit the fourth set of ears, maybe it had been expanded and made to sound even greater. Well, they healed 10 men out there that day. Because things, when they are passed on like that, they don't stay stagnant. They increase. They didn't listen any better in 31 AD than they do in 2022 AD. 
So there it is going around Jerusalem on Hebrew Facebook. The episode's not going to get smaller. It's going to be increased, expanded, perhaps even exaggerated. So now they have a rare moment of reality. A rare moment of confessing. We cannot deny it. The point, and it points to how evil their hearts and consciences were. For if there were some way to do it, they would deny it. If it were just a handful of people that saw it, they could be discredited. See, that's the beauty of the resurrection as well. Jesus appeared to just enough people to make it extremely hard to discredit them all. As Paul would tell us, he was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve. Well, if we stop there, we can discredit twelve very easy. But then, then after that, he was seen by over 500. Now, if you try to discredit 500 people at once, that's going to look bad for you. So it puts it past the tipping point. Now we see something very important here. These men have some civil authority, yes. But don't forget, they are mainly the leaders of the Jews. And so they have great religious authority. It's even greater than their civil authority is. These are supposed to be their pastors, their ministers, their religious leaders. Now, hear their rationalizations and fears. As they confer with each other, did you notice... Something that's missing. Let's go back and read it again. They conferred among themselves, verse 16, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, a notable miracle has been done through them. It's, that's evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man in this name. Now they're religious men conferring together about an issue that is religious in nature. And what do you see is left out? The name of God. They confer to each other, but they don't go to God for wisdom. Their, their whole thing is, how are we going to protect our empire? How are we going to keep things the way they are? Yes, yeah, something notable has happened. <laughs> yeah, it happened on the temple ground. Yeah, it's a miracle. And yes, thousands now have seen or heard about it. But that's all their reasoning. God is completely left out. Unlike what happens in chapter 5 after, after Peter and John are brought back, in chapter 5 and in verse 34, at least we have one here, Gamaliel. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee. <laughs> See, 
the Sanhedrin is basically run by the Sadducees. So now you've got a Pharisee standing up with some good advice. Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a while. They, you don't get, get to listen to us. And he said to them, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. Then after this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. Now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or if this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Apparently he's missing from the meeting here in chapter 4. <clears throat> They're caught up here in chapter 4 keeping their status quo. Think about these men now again. What do they control? They control the money changing in the temple. When you come from another town or city and you have to pay your taxes, your temple tax, they're the ones that exchange the money and they tell you how much your money's worth in regard to temple money. So they set the, the standard of exchange. They've got that going for them. They're the ones who sell the animals for sacrifice. You see, it's the same people whom when Jesus came to town, not only once but twice, he turned over their tables and ran them off for the abuses of what they were doing. That's what's in this group. We could call it Jerusalem, D.C. And here they are willing to forget God and merely worry about the people's reaction. Should they deny the miracle? How can we protect our positions and placate the people at the same time? So the great dilemma brings, third part here, a demonic decision. The decision they come to is this. We're putting a gag order on them. In verse 17, but so that it spreads no further among the people. Let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name so that it spreads no further. Now we, we read Psalm 2 and here they are. They're basically raging against the Lord and His anointed. And remember what it says in Psalm 2 and verse 6. Yet I have installed my king on my hill. You can't do anything about it. They can say, well, you know, the cat's out of the bag. There's nothing you can do about it. And I always wonder about that expression. Who is going around putting cats in bags? And how are they getting out? You can't stop it, even though they think they can. And this is a great point of arrogance for them. You see... If you have a corrupt mind and a seared conscience, your decisions are going to lack wisdom. 
And so they, instead, they, the decision they come up with speaks of their arrogance, somehow that they feel if they put a gag order on Peter and John and even the, the formerly crippled man, it's not going to spread any further. And yet the day that they arrested Peter and John, 5,000 came to believe. It was the greatest day of the church so far was the day that Peter and John were arrested. That's why I would call this a demonic decision. Don't speak to anyone about Jesus. Now note, it's not even religious. They don't say, in the name of the Lord, we forbid you to speak. But in, in our political power, we forbid you to speak. And again, as we pointed out, they don't mention the name of God at any time. It's all about them and how clear it is that they have set themselves against what is godly. And how much like today... If no man can answer your argument, they tend to try to shut it down. Shut down the one who brings it. Often by name-calling. But that's not much different than what we, we see in the past. Remember Jesus talking to the woman at the well? He says, go get your husband. We'll talk about this. So I don't have a... You're right! The man you're living with, you've had seven other husbands and the man you're living with is not your husband. What does she say? Man, you got me there, Lord. You're right. No, she's, you know, you Jews, you worship over there. And we worship over here. Such the same kind of idea. Uh, you make the point and people can't answer so they try to go somewhere else and perhaps even try to shut you down by calling you whatever name du jour. But who is it that desires that the name of Jesus be not spoken? And who but those whose minds have been darkened would support his cause? The only one that doesn't want the name of Christ to be spoken is the devil himself. And those who go along with the idea of keeping it quiet. My dear grandfather, one time he would, he would repeat it. Not just one time, but he would repeat it to me. He says, you don't argue, you don't talk to people about politics or religion. And he would always say, religion's a personal thing. And I didn't know much to say anything at that point, but as I got older and realized, that's exactly what the devil wants. Don't talk about it. Well, very quickly first, we see, we note how arrogant men think that by their power they can stop things. But we see at the same time the, the real power in the name of Jesus. For no one seeks to stop something that does not exist. The fact that they're trying to stop the name of Jesus being spoken means that there is something to the name of Jesus. 
I hear liberals today talking about the ideas. They say, well, you know, the Jesus of the Bible is not the Jesus of history. I say, really? Well, where do you get that from? <laughs> where, where do you come up with a Jesus of history that's not tied to the Jesus of the Bible? But those are attempts to stop the talk about it. Secondly, see how arrogant people judge others by looks or accents, by externals. Yet, at the same time, against the truth, these men have no answers. Third thing, Jesus said that he would build his church. And when you look at that statement, what he's saying? He's saying his church is going to be built in the midst of continual opposition and here we see it starting the greatest day in regard to the numbers coming to Christ was the day Peter and John were publicly taken into custody you see it's not for them to do it you can't unthrone what God has enthroned and fourthly, we'll spend more time on this next week, Lord willing, but we look at this as a civil issue, a civil authority issue. But let us also see it's a religious authority issue. And we are so grateful that those who led the Reformation looked at this and said, yes, there is a biblical warrant to go against religious authority if they're leading people away from the truth. Fifthly, very quickly, being with Jesus makes men better. These men were common fishermen before. Can you imagine what their language must have been like? But now, Holy Spirit is upon them. They've been with Christ. They speak in such a way. Even with their accents, it's still powerful. Then lastly, my friends... We have a God worth talking about. We have a Lord worth speaking about. And when we look at the trivial stuff that we speak of during the course of the day and the stuff that is so quickly passing away, how much of our conversation is spent on nothingness? And often, how little is spent on what is great and everlasting. Let's stand together for prayer.